how would you explain to somebody what worship is? That's one of those words that we, we use a lot, right? This is a worship service. Um, yeah, I'm going to go to worship, or this is a worship song, right? But it's not a word that we often stop to think about what it means or how we would explain it to somebody who doesn't use that word very often, right? What, what counts as worship? Does worship have to take place in a church building? Is singing worship? Is preaching worship? Is praying worship? Is giving to the offering worship? Is worship a feeling? Is worship an action? What is true worship? That's the title of the sermon and a phrase that Jesus uses in our passage today. What is true worship, or a true worshiper, I think is the way Jesus puts it. If there's true worship, doesn't that mean that there must also be false worship? And how do we tell the difference between those two things? Well, when Jesus had his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, that conversation quickly turned from water to worship. Jesus spoke to her of living water that he would give her if she would ask. Water that would well up within her and uh, would give eternal life. She wanted to know how and where Jesus was going to get that water and how she could get some because she didn't want to have to come to that well to get water for herself anymore. And so Jesus, at that point in the conversation, had her attention. Sir, where can I get this water? She was dialed in. Jesus had her attention, but he did not yet have her heart. So the conversation wasn't over. And maybe that is why he turns the conversation this way, beginning in verse 16 of John chapter 4. It says, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, 
I who speak to you am He. Now, again, Jesus turns the conversation. They've been talking about water. He's been talking about living water, this eternal life that He can give to her. But now He shifts the conversation by telling her to go and call her husband and then come back. Now, on the surface, that might just be a culturally appropriate move because when Jesus' disciples come back, they're surprised to find him talking to a woman. Not just a Samaritan. They would have been surprised when he was talking to a Samaritan. They were surprised that he was talking to a woman. And so perhaps on the surface, what it sounded like Jesus was saying was, before we continue this conversation, why don't you go get your husband and bring him back and then we'll We'll keep talking. But by saying this, Jesus also draws attention to something that this woman probably didn't want to talk about. Because it says in verse 17 that the woman answered him, I have no husband. I'm not married. And Jesus said, well, that's true. That's true, you don't have a husband. But then he said, in verse 18, you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. So what you have said is true. Yeah, you're not married. I know you're not married to the guy that you're with. And I know that you've been married five times before. Again, she probably didn't, want the conversation to go there. She probably didn't want to talk about those things. But that's where Jesus takes the conversation. It's hard to be sure why, but here's one thing we know. Jesus has a habit of putting his finger on people's deepest problems. Right? Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You can't even see the kingdom of God until you're born again. Or to the rich young ruler. You want to have eternal life? Sell everything you have, and then come and follow me. And he went away sad because he had great possessions, right? His possessions, his money, was what he loved. He was tied to those things. Perhaps Jesus knows that in one way or another, the thing that this woman needs addressed most is this part of her life. Now, we don't know her story, right? We don't know these five marriages that ended. We don't know if she was being mistreated by those men, if it was their fault, if it was her fault. We, we don't know, right? There's a lot that Jesus leaves untold. Right? But it's, it's clear that Jesus knows the story. Right? Because he tells her these things even though he's never met her. Right? But he's God. He knows what's going on. And so he tells her these things. But we need to notice what he doesn't do when he says this. I notice that Jesus does not call her names. Jesus does not demean or degrade her. Jesus does not ignore her. 
even though he knew this about her before he started talking to her. He has come here to save her. Five previous marriages and all. He has come here to give her life. Despite the fact that the way she's living right now is out of sync with what God designed. And we need to pay attention to that because Christians are prone to get this wrong. We sometimes act like standing for truth and righteousness means calling people names and throwing stones at them over their sins. It doesn't. Jesus is the most perfectly righteous person Whoever lived, no one can accuse him of compromising the truth or being soft on the truth. And yet he doesn't demean this woman. He doesn't yell at her. He doesn't grind her into the ground over her sins. He just offered her eternal life. He's about to tell her what he's hardly told anybody else, which is that he is the Messiah. Jesus is not naive about her sins or anybody else's. Remember what John told us at the end of chapter 2 about Jesus, that when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, John says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knows better than we know how people are. But Paul told us, in Ephesians 4, that we are to be speaking the truth in love. And sometimes people think that means speaking the truth is love. No. Now, speaking the truth is a loving thing to do, but you can speak the truth in a way that is not loving. Paul didn't say speaking the truth is love. He said speak the truth in love. There is a way that Jesus could have told this woman the truth about herself that would not have been loving. He doesn't do that. What he does is in love says to her, in effect, something like this. I know the worst things about you. And that didn't keep me from just telling you that if you would ask me, I would give you living water and that you would have eternal life. I didn't say that to you naively, not knowing your history, not knowing what's happened to you or what you have done or whatever the circumstances were. There is a way to speak the truth without love, but that's not the Christ-like way to speak the truth. Speaking the truth like Jesus means speaking the truth from a heart of love that desires people to come to know Jesus, not be pushed away from Jesus. When Jesus says these things to this woman, 
She says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's true as far as it goes. It just doesn't go far enough, right? Jesus is a prophet. In fact, he's the prophet, the one promised by Moses back in Deuteronomy 18. The one that the Pharisees were asking uh, John about, right? When they sent that delegation to John to say, Who are you? Are you Elijah? Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? Jesus is that prophet that they were waiting for. But he's also more than a prophet. He's God in the flesh. But she recognizes that he must at least be the prophet, be a prophet, because otherwise he couldn't possibly know those things about her. So he had her attention before. Now he's going after her heart, and she recognizes this is not just any old ordinary man who's talking to her. This is someone who knows things about her nobody else ought to be able to know. Nobody who hadn't grown up with her or lived in the same town as her, at least. How would you feel if Jesus walked up to you and put his finger on the deepest, darkest part of your life, the part that you wish nobody would ever bring up, the part that you wish people would forget about, the part that you want to leave behind, the things that you're ashamed of? Here's the truth. He knows about those things. Every single one of them. And he loves you anyway. Remember, Jesus did not come to this well on accident. He doesn't meet this woman on accident. He doesn't talk to her on accident. When he when it says that he had to go to Samaria, right? Like I said last week, I believe with those who've said this before me, I, I think that means he had a divine appointment. This was on purpose that he's talking to this woman. He knows all about her, and yet he engaged her in in conversation. He came seeking her out. He came to seek and to save the lost. This is what he does. And again, essentially what he's telling her is, I know all about you, and yet I still love you. I know all about you. I'm still willing to save you. I know all about you. If you would just ask me, I would give you eternal life. Now, when she recognizes he's a prophet, it's her turn to turn the conversation So in verse 20, after she said, okay, I recognize you're a prophet now. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now she's putting the emphasis of the conversation on one of the flashpoints, if you will, between the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, we saw last week the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't, the Jews didn't have dealings with Samaritans. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans. Uh, there's a long history that goes back way before Jesus of this you know, hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it was, uh, it was a religious division. It was also probably uh, an ethnic division because the Samaritans, though they lived in a region that used to belong to the Jews, were not themselves Jews. And so this woman now, recognizing 
at least something of who Jesus is, she shifts the conversation to the kind of thing you don't talk about in polite conversation. Right? When you talk to someone who you know, we don't normally talk. Right? Then the last thing you do is talk about the reason why you don't normally talk. But that's what she does. Right? Okay. okay, you're here and you're talking to me. And I recognize you're not just any ordinary man. You must be some kind of prophet. So answer this question. Part of what divides us is we disagree about how we are supposed to worship God. Our fathers, she said, her ancestors, worshipped on this mountain. That's Mount Gerizim in Samaria. But you, she says, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jerusalem, of course, is where the temple is. That's where the Jews worship. But the Samaritans worship in a different location. Is that legitimate? Is one of us right and one of us wrong? Can both of us be right? Well, how do you answer this question? Jesus says, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. A change in worship is coming, Jesus says. The way worship works is about to change. So that shortly... In fact, Jesus is going to say just a couple of verses. Actually, now, the place where you worship no longer matters. It did matter. The Jews and the Samaritans weren't wrong to think that it mattered where they worshipped. Because it did matter. Then. But Jesus says, Soon it's not going to matter. But one of the reasons why it's going to change, and not the main reason, I don't think, but one of the reasons why it's going to change is because not long after this conversation, about 40 years later, there's not even going to be a temple in Jerusalem. So that's not even going to be an option anymore. But that's not the main reason why Jesus says this. Verse 22, he says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Because here's the first thing to notice about what Jesus says there. Jesus does not say, It doesn't matter. Everybody can worship in their own way. God doesn't care how you worship. You worship in your place. We'll worship in your place. It's all equally fine. He doesn't say that. He says, you Samaritans, you don't even know who you're worshiping. Right? You worship what you do not know. We, on the other hand, we Jews, he says, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. In other words, God is working through the Jews. God is bringing salvation into the world through the Jews. They are his chosen people. He, they are the ones he has spoken to. He's given his law, his promises. So the Jews 
know who they're worshiping and they know how they are supposed to worship him, but the Samaritans don't. So Jesus does not say everyone's fine, everything's fine, whatever you want to do is fine, everything is equally valid. He does not say that. There is a right and a wrong way to worship, and the Samaritans have been missing it up to that point. Excuse me. Worship requires knowledge. Right? You worship what you do not know. That's the problem. You don't know who you're worshiping. You need to know some things that you don't know. The reason why you don't worship like you should, where, you're sh- where you should, is because you don't know what you should. So there's a reason for this disagreement between the Jews and the Samaritans. And it's ignorance. And we need to acknowledge that some of our disagreements arise out of sincere ignorance. The Samaritans were sincere. They were trying to worship God, but there was some stuff they didn't know. So they were wrong. Sometimes we don't know as much as we think we do. Maybe a lot of times we don't know as much as we think we do. We can be sincerely wrong too. That's one of the reasons why we have to turn back to the Bible over and over and over and over to have our minds renewed and instructed. Because sometimes we miss things, even that are right in front of us. So the Samaritans got worship wrong because of what they didn't know. The Jews got it right because of what they knew. God told them in Deuteronomy chapter 12, there's going to be one place where I'm going to put my name, and that's where you're going to worship. Don't worship anywhere else. Worship there. That's what, when they were at their best, that's what they were doing. Worshiping there at the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus says that's not going to matter anymore. Verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So true worship, Jesus says, is now not tied to where you are. You don't have to be in Jerusalem to worship God anymore. That was part of what you were supposed to do in the past. But now, that's not even a part of the equation. True worshipers are not required to be in any particular place. True worship is about who we worship and how we worship, not where we worship. Jesus tells us it's about how we worship when he says true worshipers will worship the Father. It matters who you worship. Jesus does not say you're made to worship, so find something to worship. 
He says, true worshipers are going to worship the Father. They're going to worship God. But notice how he says they're going to worship. True worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now what does that mean? That's the all-important question, right? What does it mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? Let's start with what it means to worship in spirit. To worship God in spirit means that worship involves more than just your physical body. It requires more of you than just the external part of you. You can show up in the right place and say the right things and perform the right motions and that not be true worship. That's what Jesus is saying. Because true worship is worship in spirit. It requires the part of you that is not merely physical to be engaged. Right? Jesus says in verse 24, God is spirit. God is not a physical being. He doesn't have physical form. Right? He doesn't have arms and legs and, and so on like we do. Right? He is spirit. He is an immaterial, non-material being. He is a spiritual being. And so He requires us to worship Him with the spiritual part of us. The non-material part of us. Remember Jesus critiqued some of the people in his own day using the words of Isaiah in Matthew 15, 8, when he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And you could say spirit there. Their spirit is far from me. You could go to the temple and present the sacrifice and go through all the steps the law required. And even in the Old Testament, that was not enough. Jesus is saying now the physical location part is no longer required. You don't have to go to the temple to worship. But here's what you still have to do. You still have to worship in spirit. Your heart still has to be engaged. It is not something that you can do merely externally. It's not just about the words that you say. It doesn't matter about the place that you go. It does matter if you are engaged from the heart. True worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth, he says. Because remember, the Samaritans didn't have the truth. That was where they went wrong. There were some things about God they didn't know. True worship requires you to know the truth about who God is and what God has said. You have to know who you're worshiping in order to worship Him rightly. You have to know what He has said about worship in order to worship Him rightly. If He has said, don't worship me that way, and you're worshiping Him that way, that's not true worship. Because it's not in accord with the truth. So you have to worship Him in spirit and truth. And Jesus says, the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. 
What do you think Jesus is doing at this well? He's seeking someone who will be so transformed at the spiritual level, at the heart level, that what will flow out of her is worship in spirit and truth. He's about to tell her the truth. I'm the Messiah. And her life is about to be transformed and turned upside down so that she will want to worship God in spirit. True worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth, he says, and the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. He's looking for those kinds of people to worship Him. And and notice what he says in verse 24. Right? I already mentioned this briefly, but we need to circle back around to this. Where he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The requirement that we worship in spirit and truth is tied to the fact that God is spirit. Why is that the case? Why is that so important? Place is not important for worship because God is spirit. If God had a body, he would be limited to a particular place, right? And so you would need to go to that place in order to worship him. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a particular place where they were supposed to worship, not because God was limited to that place, right? But because that's the way God set it up for that period of time Probably, and this is you know, maybe speculation on my part, but probably to help them remember that there was one God and not a whole lot of gods. Because when you believe there's a whole lot of gods, there's a whole lot of places the people were worshiping. He was saying, there's only one of me, and so there's only one place I want you to worship. Now that you got that part down, you don't have to go to that place anymore. There's still only one of me, but you can worship me anywhere. Solomon, this is not new, right? Solomon knew even when he built the temple in the Old Testament, the temple could not contain God. Uh, He knew that. But God is spirit. He's not limited to a particular place. And so our worship is no longer limited to a particular place. Idolatry is forbidden because God is spirit. Moses tells the people in Deuteronomy 4, he says, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form, no body, no physical appearance, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, that's also Mount Sinai, where they got the Ten Commandments, since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. One of the reasons why idolatry is wrong is because you can't put God, who is spirit, in a material form that represents Him accurately. So God said, don't do it. Don't try it. You didn't see a form when I spoke to you. Don't try to make a form that will enable you to worship Him. If that's the case, then someone might ask, how come the Bible does say Or seems to say that God has an arm and eyes and things like that. If God is spirit and doesn't have a body, why does it say that? Why does it say in Exodus, for example, where God's going to rescue his people, why does he say, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm? 
Or in Exodus 15, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in His eyes. Does He have eyeballs and vocal cords and a bicep? Is He saying, watch what I'm about to do, you're going to see this huge arm come down out of heaven and just sweep the Egyptian armies away. No, that's not what He means. And they know that's not what He means. Always, God is communicating with us in ways that we can understand. Right? To say that His outstretched arm is going to redeem them is simply to say, I am mighty and powerful and I'm going to use my great might to rescue you. To say that God has eyes just means He knows what we're doing and where we are and what we're up to. He sees. He's not ignorant. He's not blind. He doesn't have vocal cords, but He speaks. We hear His voice. But it doesn't mean that He has a body like us. That's why the incarnation is so huge. That's why it's such a big deal that John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Jesus has arms and eyes and vocal cords because He became man. Because He took on flesh so that He could save us. So that He could lay down His life for us. And again, God is seeking people who will worship Him in accord with who He is. God is spirit. He's seeking people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we should care about what God cares about. That means we should seek to be the kind of people who worship Him in spirit and truth. And that we should aim to find more people who will worship Him in spirit and truth. We're not mainly concerned with, can we get more people to come to our church? We want more people to worship God in spirit and truth. That's what God is after. That's what we are supposed to be after. Well, Jesus has answered her question pretty thoroughly, right, in just a few verses. But she's not yet convinced. After all, she did just meet him. So verse 25, it says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. That seems to be kind of a way of saying, okay, well, maybe you're right, maybe you're not, but we're not really going to know the answer until the Messiah comes. Apparently the Samaritans believed that a Messiah was coming just like the Jews did. But Jesus says something there's no way she expected, I don't think. He says to her, I who speak to you am he. The answer I just gave you to the question is the answer that you've been looking for because I'm the one you've been waiting for to come clear up all the uncertainty. I'm the one coming with the answers. I'm the one coming who can tell you this is how God wants us to worship. Now, on the surface, this conversation may seem to have strayed far from where it started with a request for a drink of water. But in reality, it's not strayed at all. It has only gone deeper. Because true worship, spiritual worship, arises from a soul welling up with living water, which only Christ 
the Messiah can give. Let's pray.